0: Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl, confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. Thanks for joining me today. This is the third in a series of, well, I was aiming for it to be a series of three. I think it will turn out to be a series of four. Four podcasts. And the podcasts focus on uh, an excellent conversation that took place in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group between September 12th and September 18th. I'll make reference to a number of comments and reference the comments to the speakers by name. I've been given permission by the commenters to do so. In the previous podcast, I finished with a discussion of the importance of human happiness and fulfillment, which I have referred to as gaining what I might call full functionality as a human being and becoming one's, if you like, best self. Specifically, I argued that valuing happiness and fulfillment through the process of being in a love relationship with God based on truth, in other words, where one loves God entirely, loves oneself rightly, and loves one's neighbor likewise, that being in a love relationship with God based on truth is the best antidote to avoid overstepping one's boundaries and acting contrary to one's goals and how one claims to want to treat others, that seems to be so common amongst evangelical Christians. Now, it's probably a good idea to back up here and just say that this um, probably four-part series, it's based on a conversation in the, as I mentioned, Untangling Christianity Facebook group. It was inspired, however, um, by some comments that came from listeners regarding some previous podcasts about how evangelical Christians engage with outsiders, and particularly my view that evangelical Christians do not engage well. They do not engage from from a perspective that values the views of outsiders. They do not typically really even understand much of what those views are. So in the previous podcast, I mentioned again the importance of human happiness and fulfillment. I made the comparison between my emphasis on happiness and fulfillment uh, through a focus on embodying what can be referred to as the greatest commandment. This is, again, this idea of being in a love relationship with God based on truth. And I compared this with St. Augustine's focus on happiness through his work, Debiata Vita. I noted, however, that many Christians adhere to a view that seems subtly different from this, but is, in my view, rather problematic. Specifically, the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism, Article 1, identifies that, and this is a quotation, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, end quote. On the one hand, this seems close to a focus on happiness. Um, Yet on the other hand, this orientation is not the same as the top priority laid out in the Gospels of loving God entirely, loving oneself rightly, and loving others likewise. That would be my paraphrase. The difficulty, in my view, begins with the fact that the New Testament is remarkably clear. Those who follow Jesus are to hold as their highest priority what I, again, paraphrase as loving God entirely. And as their second priority, loving themselves rightly and others likewise. In other words, on my interpretation of the biblical text, the purpose of human existence is to be in a love relationship with God based on truth. And to allow this truth-based love relationship to impact and flavor all other interactions and pursuits. Not only is this not the same as the Westminster Shorter Catechism first article, but in my view, glorifying God and enjoying God instead of being in a love relationship with God based on truth that impacts all other activities actually has negative consequences. So glorifying God and enjoying God rather than being in a a truth-based love relationship with God actually has negative consequences. These consequences are easier to understand by examining what seems to be the guiding orientation in setting the top goal of humanity in this creed or creedal formula, such that it is at odds with the very clear indication of humanity's top goal in the biblical text. So this uh, disjunction is striking and very problematic in my view. I believe that the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism managed to Misappropriate or insufficiently engage with, or potentially even ignore, the very clear top priority due to a skewed emphasis on one aspect of the Christian God's nature and a corresponding underrepresentation or devaluing of another, equally central and equally important aspect of the Christian God's nature. Simply stated, the Westminster Confession, shorter catechism, puts too much emphasis on God's sovereignty. Not enough emphasis on God's fatherhood and parenthood. By corollary, it puts too much emphasis on truth and the importance of declaring, promoting, and defending that truth. Hence, the action, it's an action of glorifying God. And not enough emphasis on love and the necessity of receiving and giving love. In other words, the state of being loved and in love with God and allowing that mode of being to flavor and direct my actions. I am making a very clear distinction here between something that is at base an action and something that is at base a state of being or an orientation. Now similarly, I would say that the Westminster Confession in 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 its initial formulation, it's it's a much longer document. And again, I'm only looking at the the shorter piece, but it's very definitive. It's very, very explicit in stating this is the top priority. And that I take issue with. I would also say that, similarly, the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism puts too much emphasis on salvation and too little on creation. Now, it's interesting that in the first podcast in this series, I actually equated an overemphasis on God's sovereignty with the notion of magnifying God, a notion essentially identical to worshiping God. Here's what I mentioned in the first podcast. God's sovereignty is often taken to mean God's power to judge and act with absolute determination over the created order, and, especially, to do so eschatologically, at the end of time. Particularly, the blend of God's power, knowledge, and yet goodness—so goodness in sending Jesus and sparing humans from the just punishment of hell—these aren't my ideas, but this is typically how it's framed in evangelical Christianity. Is what evangelical Christians typically see as the basis for God's greatness. Many Christians then promote God's greatness, expressed particularly as God's sovereign mercy, in sparing humans from God's sovereign wrath and judgment. And this piece is pretty crucial. Many Christians then promote God's greatness simply by emphasizing the unmerited nature of this mercy, but by claiming that God's by also claiming that God's greatness is itself more than sufficient reward to humans for serving God. In other words, for many Christians, magnifying God, and here I think we can readily substitute the term worshiping God, means extolling God's sovereignty by claiming that while in all other contexts, human needs are fulfilled by various external things, when it comes to Christianity, God meets every human need just by being God. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is there's a sense that Christians, I think, in their attempt to make God's sovereignty as massive as possible, God's resources for us as majestic and as limitless, if you will, as possible, there's actually almost the notion that instead of having my needs met, maybe we're not talking food here, we're talking emotional needs, or we're talking um, intellectual needs, that they're met by God. However, such a perspective actually detaches our understanding of God humans and how the two are best meant to relate from their biblical portrayals. So in other words, the notion of promoting or magnifying God to being not simply all sufficient, but also actually almost overriding or annulling human needs and how they're met in very human and created ways, misunderstands that human needs and their fulfillment through normal created commodities, so, you know, food for hunger, sleep for fatigue, But also love for rejection and truth for lies. And sometimes I think it's the latter of these notions of, uh, you know, we get all the love we need from God. We have all the truth we need from God. No, no, not at all. We need to rely on scientific truth. We need to rely on uh, relational and interhuman relational love. By trying to make God so big that God takes the place of all these other things, we are actually undermining and defeating the very value of the created order that God has put in place to orient ourselves, to orient us rightly, interestingly, <laughs> ironically, to God, to ourselves, to others, and to the world as well. So again, the notion of promoting or magnifying God to being not simply all-sufficient in terms of being able to put us in right relationship with God, and the biblical text being an important piece of that, um, we sometimes actually see God as overriding human needs. And this misunderstands that the human needs and their fulfillment through normal created commodities is how humans connect with God, how they maintain that connection, and how they offer due witness to the interconnectedness of life and faith. And, of course, how they embody the results of full functioning and being one's best self. So coming back to that part part again, it's how we embody the results of full functioning and being our best selves that is possible through living life in a relationship of dependent independence with God. So I'm kind of, kind of full circle here with this notion that magnifying, or if you will, worshiping, or in any way focusing on God's sovereignty to the exclusion of God's fatherhood and parenthood often has the effect of warping this notion of sovereignty into something that from a human perspective, seems much larger, and it's so this, this sort of grand thing, but it can't be substantiated. It doesn't play out in real life. And in fact, what we find is that the opposite is the case. Instead of looking for all of our needs from God, you know, whether it's all of our love needs, all of our truth needs, we are supposed to be looking for that through both the salvific route, if you want to talk theological language, both through being in right relationship with God, but also in being in right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with the world around us. And that includes embracing and valuing other informers, such as uh, scientific information, whether that be uh, biological, psychological, neurological, etc. So from what I've just mentioned, one difficulty that I have with the Westminster Shorter Confession first article is that it promotes not human enjoyment of relationship with God, with oneself, with others, and with the created order, but with the enjoyment of God alone. Right? So here again, we're getting back to this, not just a core focus on God, but a soul focus. And I think that is completely not what the biblical text is pointing us to. And it's an an exaggeration that skews things and eventually undermines, actually. So, And with the created order, but with the enjoyment of God alone, as though this is sufficient and is what God intended, as if the created order were only an intermediate and temporary structure rather than a necessary reality. So again, it's this undermining of creation for the sake of salvation. Salvation is just so important, and God is so magnificent, and God is so sovereign. Mm, This isn't what the text is telling us. That's part of it, but we're missing the other part. And in so doing, we're breaking and skewing the message. So it's not in keeping with the focus of the biblical text. God gives every good thing for enjoyment, including ourselves. We are given ourselves to enjoy and to live out our lives in right relationship with God, but in right relationship with others and with the world as well. So including ourselves and the created order is not to be superseded, but actually to be renewed and remade when God's kingdom is fully realized. And this is something that I think we often forget. So in my graduate work I argued that this overemphasis on God's sovereignty and underemphasis on God's fatherhood and or parenthood is connected with certain trends that are current in biblical hermeneutics and that these trends promote environments namely Christian communities where it's increasingly likely for truth to be essentially fixed or rigidified in a hierarchy above love so truth is more important than love love's important but truth is more so no both are co-central, and that's one of the main, if not the principal arguments of this entire podcast. My second objection to the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism Article 1 is really a challenge for those who hold a deep affinity for it or for similar viewpoints, and that challenge is to formulate the implications of this view more fully. In other words, I think that these folks need to ask, if I take enjoyment of God, end quote, to be my chief goal, what effect should this enjoyment most likely produce? In other words, what's the logical impact of any enjoyment or outcome? The question is aimed at helping those who promote the Westminster Confession to consider whether the purpose of human existence is more an act or more an outcome, such as a state of being. Here I'm coming back to what I said earlier about the Westminster Confession, focusing on acts, things that we do, rather than orientations, states of being and orientations that we hold. For example, being in love relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. On the Westminster Confession framing, it is an act. So once again, even enjoyment is stated in the verbal form, to enjoy God. This is an action. From my perspective, while action is certainly involved, The purpose of human existence is to achieve, or at least frequently experience, a state of being or state of mind out of which our actions, thinking, and dispositions will necessarily be best oriented. Now, if we take this in comparison with Augustine again, with this notion of happiness, happiness being the end result, right? Once again, we're kind of moving from a state of mind or an orientation through actions into a result that is a state of being. So further, um, I think that my framing of the matter has the advantage of being supported and corroborated by a large body of scientific evidence, such as understandings in psychology and neurology, that show that how we perceive and experience the world is determinative for how we engage with the world. So there's a logical flow here, right? Certain types of orientations and states of mind, states of being, will encourage certain actions and discourage others. And those actions, in turn, will promote other states of being and results in terms of orientation. Now, clearly, this is a two-way street. So uh, a certain range of actions promote certain frames of mind, and certain frames of mind promote a certain range of actions. It, it is, you know, reciprocal. Yet I think that the Westminster Confession both, on the one hand, fails to start at the right place, which is loving God entirely, loving ourselves rightly, and loving others likewise. And, on the other hand, it fails in its formulation to offer the outcome or result of orienting ourselves towards God in this way. It sees humans only in relation to God and never in relation to anything else. And this is the point, again, that the whole of the created order is a good thing and something that will endure, right? Because the very implication of a new earth and resurrected bodies speaks against this idea that it's all about God. No, 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 no. There's an entire new creation here, and we are, in effect, new, recreated, as resurrected bodies. So this whole orientation, the, if you will, philosophy underpinning this, cuts very hard against how the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism, Article 1, is stated. My third objection is this. The implication of these components is that humans are, by nature, Beings who function best when they are in relationships of what my mentor likes to call dependent independence. So this is my my viewpoint uh, that I've expressed in the previous podcast. Another very maybe succinct way of expressing what I'm trying to get at in uh, referring to being in a relationship of dependent independence in order to be my best self is that we are to grow into whom we are meant to be as beings. And I think the richness of what's involved in that simply is not, it's nowhere. It's nowhere on the horizon of the Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, Article 1. So this is a slightly different way of expressing my previous concern that it's all about God. Um, perhaps the best summary of, of what I'm trying to say here can be seen by how I would restate Article 1 of the Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism the primary orientation of a human being is to love God entirely, love him or herself rightly, and to love others likewise. And the primary task of a human being is to enjoy living and becoming who one is meant to be. So to restate that, the primary orientation of a human being is to love God entirely, love her or himself rightly, and to love others likewise. And the primary task of a human being is to enjoy living and enjoy becoming who one is meant to be, to enjoy the created order, to enjoy others, and to enjoy him or herself in the context of being in a relationship of dependent independence with God. That is, in being in a love relationship based on truth with God, who knows me more truly than I know myself and loves me more deeply than I love myself. Now, admittedly, one of the aims of a shorter catechism is to be brief. Uh, I think what I'm arguing for here is that I admire their willingness or their, their, their thinking that they can achieve this in two sentences. I don't think that it's possible. And I think that's part of the issue. If you can achieve it in a paragraph, that's fantastic. But what they've got there is simply, on the one hand, it's misaligned, and I think it's wrong-headed. And to go back to the integration project, it's much more connected with the biblical text. It's much more in line with what we experience as human beings living our lives. The effect, then, of that type of relationship is that my innate finitude, my fallibility, and my fallenness are complemented. So as most often to manifest instead, so instead of finitude, to be situated. Instead of fallible, to be capable. And instead of fallen, to, be, to manifest integrity. Situatedness, capability, and integrity. In this way, I'm most empowered to become my best self and so function most fully, meaning to live as I am best able to live. And that's a happy place to be, to go back to Augustine. So let's return to that great conversation that took place in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group between September 12th and 18th. In the first podcast, I presented the first half of the comments and offered some input on the comments. In this, the third podcast, I want to uh, start by reviewing some of the subsequent comments by Amy, Anna, and Dan. And again, not in their entirety, but in the order in which they occurred. Dan wrote, I find most attempts to find truth are neutered by unintentional efforts to support the, quote, truths a person already knows. The most common case I've seen in Christianity is where people are willing to explore truth only so far as it doesn't leave the boundaries of the assumption that the Bible is inerrant. Any attempts to discuss why that foundation must first be presumed true usually leads to a breakdown in the conversation. I think we all have a circle that defines how far we're willing to venture in our search before we get extremely agitated. That circle is bigger for some than others, and I think it can grow when we realize our circles restrict us, but I expect there's always a limit to what we can take. So I can no longer define the quality of a church or group by how well it follows the truths, i.e. the Bible, that I already think to be true. I'm far more interested in how well people can explore seemingly asinine ideas without losing their cool. People with answers creep me out a bit, but I love hanging out with people that will explore questions with me. Anna wrote, Dan Daly, I like the way you think. I've gotten to the point where I will consider just about anything in capitals a possibility. Maybe not a probability, but a possibility. I force, in capitals, myself to do this, even if it makes me very uncomfortable, because once I close anything off, I'm trying to control mystery instead of allowing it to do its magical work. I try not to exclude anything right away. I try to run it by my sensors and examine it from every angle. Some things do get the boot eventually, but not after intentional thought." End quote. I think that each of these comments is valuable, and yet each points to, in my opinion, an aspect of current Christian thinking that I find incomplete, questionable, or problematic. Dan's comment about the assumptions upon which our truth claims are based is very important, and I find myself strongly agreeing with the notion that, while holding assumptions that underlie our truth claims is completely normal and necessary— and unwillingness to explain and validate these assumptions, let alone even have these assumptions examined and potentially challenged, is extremely problematic. My interpretation of such cases is that Christians seem to want to claim what we might call the epistemic high ground, the claim that they have better or truer truth than others. Yet clearly there is no basis for such a claim, The only proof for the truthfulness of a claim is to produce some form of evidence that is relevant and persuasive. This is what I often refer to as the necessary relationship between truth claims and corresponding truth values, where the truth value is something that corroborates or substantiates a given claim as being true. Or perhaps this is a case of Christians confusing truth claims, the claim that something is the case for truth values, the corresponding evidence that supports and validates a given claim. Clearly, the two are not identical. Any complex, non-trivial truth claim can never represent its own truth values. Now, I'm less convinced by Dan's view that the unwillingness on the part of many Christians to consider their assumptions is what he calls an unintentional effort. Instead, I think that Amy and Anna's discussion and I won't raise it again here, but I mentioned it uh, in the past two podcasts, they had a discussion about deceit, and I think that offers quite a bit of insight. This is because, in my view, the presence of rampant inconsistencies in how individuals think and act, and particularly the presence of these same inconsistencies within communities, is one of the chief indicators that self-deceit is at work in a rather unchecked fashion. So recall... Self-deceit is doing the things that we claim to disavow, yet doing them in such a way as to conceal the fact that we're doing them and the truth of our intentions from ourselves. And as I've mentioned in the past, its deep insights into the presence and nature of self-deceit are one of the reasons why I find the biblical text worthy of further consideration. The Bible is offering us some very potent, I think, indications of human nature and the realities of self-deceit as part of that nature that are very much worth considering. And then from my perspective, this contributes to my willingness to take the Bible as an authority source relative to how I live my life, and certainly relative to what it is to be a human being. So the Bible has some input, not full and total, but some valuable and necessary input. So to restate matters, when Christians who make the clear claim to be truth seekers and to you know, if you like have the truth, are staunchly unwilling to examine or to validate their truth claims, such as the case when Christians claim biblical inerrancy, I think this is clearly an intentional act. Yet in my view, it is primarily a self-deceptive act. This is because the stated reason that most Christians offer for defending biblical inerrancy at any cost, uh, you know, which they might refer to as defending God's truth, the stated reasons actually undermine the truth claim. When Christians refuse to examine their truth claims critically or provide corresponding truth values to substantiate their truth claims, yet by deceiving themselves into believing that their unwillingness to examine or validate their truth claims is actually a way of validating and promoting God's truth, when in fact they're actually discrediting it, right? Because that's that's the implication Dan is giving here. And that's certainly been my experience, by failing to be willing to critically examine some of these uh, notions, such as biblical inerrancy, it simply undermines the whole notion. Christians can, however, uh, by following this kind of path of self deceit, they can both view themselves as, if you like, righteous, so they're acting rightly in God's service, and view their opponents as being in the wrong. That being anyone who does not agree, whether non Christians or not. So in this case, I think the effect of such self deceit is to allow Christians to sidestep the complex, and I think, not only unwinnable, but unnecessary, and actually a biblically unsound matter of insisting upon biblical inerrancy, while believing that they have, in fact, acted with integrity towards the Bible and loving, lovingly towards their opponents. So, so it's a very dense package I'm giving you there. So in other words, what I'm saying is, and I'll repeat that, the effect of such self-deception is to allow Christians to sidestep the complex, and I think not only unwinnable, but unnecessary and actually biblically unsound view or insistence upon biblical inerrancy while believing that they have acted with intellectual integrity, with integrity towards the Bible, and lovingly towards their opponents. The problem, however, is that by insisting upon biblical inerrancy, these Christians have, in fact, acted unfairly. They have not been willing to examine the validity of their claims and prove them that the Bible is somehow inerrant and unlovingly by closing down that type of conversation uh, and yet demanding that outsiders still believe, even though they're not willing to present enough validation to show that somehow the Bible is without any errors, as though this is something that's actually necessary. So both towards outsiders and towards the very biblical text that they're trying to enshrine. Another point that Dan raises is that, and I'm going to quote him here, people with answers creep me out a bit, but I love hanging out with people who, that will explore questions with me, end quote. My sense is that this view is one that a small but increasing number of Christians find appealing. The notion that answers are worrying, or at least claiming to have too many answers is worrying. Or perhaps claiming to have answers to really big issues is worrying. So on the one hand, I would agree. Often Christians want to present to the world that they have all the answers, or as I've mentioned in past, they have at least all the answers that count. More so, some Christians offer very, very tidy, yet simple and matter-of-fact presentations of these, quote, answers. Now, I find both of these orientations, having all the important answers and presenting them simplistically, unconvincing, and in fact problematic. So these types of responses actually tend to repulse people from Christianity because the answers typically don't work and the presentations can be patronizing, and um, yeah, they're just overly simplistic. They don't work either. Yet the notion that answers generally, whether as making a truth claim or substantiating it, the notion that answers generally are problematic is itself, I think, problematic. Here's what I mean. I take answers in the sense that Dan is referring to them either to represent truth claims, so asserting or arguing that such and such is true, or to represent truth values, asserting or arguing that such and such proves something to be true in a supposedly reasonable and satisfying way. In other words, answers in this sense are typically either claims to truth or reasoning and content that represents proof of truthfulness. They're either claims to truth or reasoning and content that represents proof of truthfulness, supposedly in a sufficient and perhaps even even a final way. Now, as John and I have discussed at length over many podcasts, many Christian answers of this sort, whether truth claims or supposed truth values, sometimes are neither coherent, nor do they prove matters in a satisfying, let alone final sort of way. I completely agree with this. Yet my concern is that the above approach risks unhelpfully reversing the situation rather than fixing it. So instead of offering truth claims that claim too much or truth values that assert too much, the above approach risks applying too much suspicion towards truth claims and values or towards those presenting them. I see this as having two likely results, both negative. First, we risk viewing truth claims as statements that were never meant to be substantiated. For instance, when people say things like, it's all about the journey or the discussion, not about the destination or the conclusion. Well, I strongly disagree with this. I both want to enjoy the journey or at least gain something valuable from it and to arrive at a better place or to arrive at a destination that I'm hoping to get to, right? Both of these are important, both the destination and the journey, both the discussion and the conclusions. I want the discussion to be valuable precisely because I want to learn something or gain clarity as to the outcome. The second likely result is that we risk approaching truth values as though claiming that certain reasoning or content is true is suspicious or even wrong-headed, perhaps because we mistakenly conclude that because humans are not able to come to final foolproof answers on many of these difficult matters, that it's not valuable to lay out provisional or working answers up to these matters. Or perhaps because we've too often seen Christians abuse and control others Through promoting their own views as true and forcing or trying to force others to adhere to them or obey them. Regardless of the reasons, both of these approaches are problematic. In fact, by holding either view, we actually undercut our own position, we contradict ourselves, and risk holding a nonsensical viewpoint. For instance, being apprehensive about truth claims or truth values or about people who offer answers amounts to the same thing as saying there's something worrisome about people who make truth claims or the truth values that people assert can't be trusted. The problem, however, is that I've just made a truth claim through that sentence, right? So the implication is, you should be worried about the truth claims that I've just made. Or worse, my truth claims can't be trusted. Yet this is precisely not what the speaker would intend. Because the speaker wants to be believed. So my concern with preferencing questions to answers is the same as my concern with preferencing answers to questions. Both are necessary, and each of us has areas of our lives where we have more answers and areas where we have more questions. In other words, I believe that one of the crucial tensions for right living is between confidence and humility. What is more, here again we see that properly integrating life and faith leads to gains on both sides. The difficulty is that an overemphasis on either leads to problems. I regularly engage with Christians who state their beliefs in extremely strong and definite terms. Yet doing so, having the appearance of confidence, does not make these beliefs biblical or even valid. In my view, Christians present in this way as a cover for their lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, and so their fear, usually fear about the complexities of the matters in question and their sense of inadequacy to grapple and come to terms with these matters. The solution, as I see it, is, on the one hand, to face our fears by admitting that, yes, the task is daunting. And also, our resources are insufficient to go it alone. And so the next step is to commit ourselves to learning and to engage the help of the greater Christian body and of other informers, Christian or not, who can help us shed light on the matters at hand. Similarly, when questions are valuable but answers are not, or simply, perhaps, answers are less valuable... I see Christians at risk of embracing an inflated sense of humility. This inflated humility, from what I have seen, typically acts as a cover for our frustration with, and potentially for our disdain for, those who make strong claims and attempt to impose those claims on others as, if you will, the only way. The solution, I think, here is to become more aware of, and so less motivated by our negative responses to such situations. And to recognize that the manner of presentation does not correlate with the truthfulness of what is presented. The more we begin to disconnect the manner of presentation from the claim to truth, and the more that becomes a prominent understanding amongst Christians about particularly Christian truth claims, the better off we'll be. Returning to the integration project, one way to engage with this type of issue is to ask ourselves, How do I respond to similar situations in other areas of my life? How do I feel, in other words, about people with answers versus people who ask questions in my personal life, my family life, my work life, my social interactions? Often there will be some deviations in how I respond in these different areas. But a clue or how mm, this particular notion of answers versus questions plays out in terms of Christian beliefs is when my response to such matters is notably different when it concerns my faith whether different in nature or in magnitude, than when it concerns other areas of my life. And I'll leave that point for a future podcast. At this point, I think I'm going to have to close. It's been a bit longer than I wanted it to be, and I still have one further podcast to close off this series. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.